again, welcome. So glad that you're here this morning. My name is Matthew. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after the service. I am just one of the three pastors here. Uh, just a couple quick things. We're going to pause the Gospel of Mark until the beginning of next year. Uh, next week, we will begin our series and, and the Advent. We'll be going through uh, that. But today, I'm going to just kind of share something that I've been reading through and uh, just hope for the best, uh, if that's all right. So if you have a Bible, <laughs> turn to Revelation chapter 3. It's not as intense as it's going to sound. Some of you are probably a little bit more excited than you should be right now. I've been going through Revelation. What I have found is that this book is not a confusing book as some of us try to make it out to be. In fact, when John wrote this letter, this was distributed out to the church, and you had a very early church, a very young church, a church that was likely, we can probably assume, not educated, or at least not educated in the means that we would be educated today, and as they would read this out as one full letter, the church understood what was happening. Somewhere along the line of around 200 or 300 years ago, we have overcomplicated the message of what Revelation is all about. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ that Jesus is trying to get his church to ready themselves for what is about to come in this particular time. And, and, and Jesus comes to John, and, and it had been decades before uh, Jesus, John had seen Jesus. And, and just so imagine being the beloved of Jesus, and you're exiled on an island, and you know that your brothers and sisters are being persecuted and heavily persecuted for the cause of Christ and for his name. And you're out there all by yourself, can't do anything really about it because you're in exile. You, you know, life isn't going well for you. You're older in your age. And then all of a sudden, decades after, G, after John had seen the risen Christ and the ascension of Jesus, Jesus appears to John and he says, John, I've, I'm, I've, I've got some, and this is paraphrase, okay? I have some concerns about many of the churches and I want you to write down a letter to them. And he writes down a letter to seven churches. Now, seven is very significant because in Revelation and throughout all of Scripture, seven is completion. And so it's not just to a church that we're going to see in Philadelphia. Not, that's not in Pennsylvania. It's not to a church just in Sardis, just in Thessalonica. Um, it's not just into these, these, these seven churches, but it is to the complete, holistic, universal church. So there's got to be a message into this that is even relevant for us today, some 2,000 years later, outside of John being like laid out on his face because the power and presence of Jesus meets him. And he tells them, I want you to write a letter to the seven churches. And so, and so he, he tells them, I'm going, to, I'm going to send out my messengers or my angels or my messengers. And this is likely translated better to say that you're going to take these letters and use the pastors to go out back to these churches to read this to them. So he tells them, I'm going to, I'm going to write these letters and you're going to tell them. And I want to just kind of look at the church of Philadelphia because I just think that it has something for us in particular 
today for just, for, for us, for, for us right here in this room, for the church of Cedar City, for the church that's, that's in Utah, the, 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 the small and seemingly weak, on the surface, churches of Utah. Look at the church of Philadelphia and hear the word of the Lord this morning. And to the angel or, or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. And he who shuts and no one opens, say this, I know your deeds. Lord, I have put before, before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept my word of perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of the testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Behold, firmly, or I am coming quickly. Hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in my temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be mighty to save, be mighty to strengthen us by your Spirit, Lord. I pray, God, that for those of us who may have been looking for some deep word, Lord, thank you, God, that we have just, we just heard it. It is your word that we've just heard, God. Sanctify us by the truth of it. We ask that we would not just be hearers of it, but also doers. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to consider the idea of strength and weakness. Strength and weakness in the two churches in Revelation that have no positive qualities mentioned are the two churches that are the most impressive. In Sardis and Laodicea, while the two churches that have no negative qualities mentioned are the two that are persecuted and look the weakest. That, that is Smyrna and then the one we just read about, Philadelphia. The strongest that appear are the weakest. The weakest, as they appear, are the strongest. Let me say that again. The stronger they appear, they're actually weak. The weaker they appear, they're actually strong. It is an interesting um, biblical theme. When you think about strength and weakness, it's both obvious and confusing. Obvious God's strength is made perfect in our weaknesses, and weaknesses is what we want, yet not all weakness of every kind are celebrated. All of us want strength 
We wish we were more muscular. We wish we were more attractive. We wish that as we go old, we want the strength back from our youth. I thought I'd have an amen right there. My, new, my knees can dictate what the weather is going to do. What is that? I'm old. That's what that is. We want more money. We want more success. We want to be more athletic in things. We want better kids. We want better spouses. We want <laughs> Some of you are just wishing for a spouse. We want the strength. We want the bigger house. We want the things that on the surface from our eyes make us appear to be stronger. We want the more influence. We want the more followers. Each of us, if we're honest, we have a desire to be stronger than we are. But the Bible, the interesting thing about the Bible is that it actually speaks more highly about weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If I boast, I will boast of the things that, that, that show my weaknesses, is what Paul said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, not your strength, but your weakness. So it seems on the surface we ought to prefer weakness. And that's true. But it's also not true that being poor is, being, is better than being rich. That's not true. It's not true that being uneducated is better than being highly educated, unless it turns you into a liberal person. It's not, it's not true having few gifts is better than many gifts. Abraham himself was a rich man. David was a very strong king. Moses was an incredible, talented leader. Esther was an incredibly beautiful human. So on the surface, it seems so, which is what, what, is, what do we do? Culture is telling us to be more beautiful and have all these things. I mean, we don't want a church that if we're all dumber, uglier, less successful, then maybe perhaps then we will reach our full potential. I don't think that's true either. So as we look at the church and we look at this concept of weakness in the Bible, I ask the question, why does the Bible, why does scripture, why does God prefer weakness to strength? And what does that look like? The weakness that God is looking for is not the things that we see, but it's a spiritual weakness. It's a humility of our mind. It's a brokenness of our heart and our spirit for the things of the Lord. It is to be emptied out of self. It is to despise the sinful things that we do and the sinful things that we see and the injustices that we see all around us. So weakness is in regard the better of the two because the temptation to forsake the Lord and rely on ourselves is so much greater when we have become so strength and so much more obvious strength in our own eyes. Rich is not evil, right? People in the Bible are rich, but the Bible teaches that to have wealth, you are in grave danger. Danger of money is the danger of strength is what the Bible would teach. 
Strength isn't necessarily the problem. It's looking for strength. It's looking at strengths that is lies is the problem. It is God who turns our weaknesses into strength. We don't know much about the church of Philadelphia. We just know that on paper, they didn't look good. That if we were to have the top 100 most influential churches of Philadelphia, uh, of the, the Asian, the minor Asian, and on the Israel and all of these different types of, of areas, I, 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 I don't think we would find Philadelphia on the list. People wouldn't be calling the pastor of Philadelphia and be like, hey, can you come speak at our church? Tell us how we can be more weak. I need the 10 steps. In the Church of America, we find the most influential pastors. And we go flock to their conferences and we want to learn all the ways in which they are doing things. Because why? We want more strength. We want more people. We want more influence. We want to look on the surface like when they call me up and they ask me how many you're running, we're not embarrassed by what we say. That's the Church of America. The Church of Philadelphia is on paper. We're not asking them to come and speak to our conference. In fact, they were such an incredible force for 1,200 years. Up until the Ottoman Empire came in and murdered and massacred every single last one of them. And until that moment, in the eyes of men, they were weak. But in the eyes of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ, they were the strongest of the churches. How is this possible? All of these churches, Jesus gives them the most comfort and hope and promises it, within these seven churches. It, and it reminds me, this Philadelphia church, of, of not of, of us, but it more so reminds me of what you would see somewhere in China, where they're in the underground churches. But right now in China, they're removing crosses from building and they're setting up to where you can worship. Um, you could be a Christian, but it's got to be a state-run church. And, and, and right now in China, they're rewriting the Bible to have the influence of Confucius and all of these different weird other names to ha add into their influence in the Bible and to strip the word of God of its authority. And I, and I see the church of China and I see that this is the church of Philadelphia. I see churches here in Utah and I say, this is the church of Philadelphia. There are six quick promises of this very weak church that our Lord Jesus gives to them. Jesus promises them an open door that no one can shirt. Verse 8 says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door that no one can shut. This is the language that Paul used in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, when he prayed, when he asked the Colossians and he said, pray with me. And my earnest desire for you is to have an open door for what? For more ministry. What is this? An open door that God would continue to bring out and forth his kingdom of God. What is this? Salvation. 
Man, we like like in church or maybe in your own life, like when we're praying for God to open up a door, it's it's oftentimes, and there's nothing wrong with this, like open the door for this job, open the door for this, you know, whatever, you just fill in the blank, open the door for this, for that. But but the prayer of Paul, the prayer that Jesus is asking them, and the, what, the promise that he's given them is that I'm going to give you an open door. It's not an open door for you to come out of persecution. It's not an open door for you to kind of become the influential church. It's an open door that many will come to the saving grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Through who? Through the influential church? Through the big and the glorious? No, he looks at this weak body of Christ. He looks at his bride in Philadelphia. And he says, through you, I am going to open a door that no one will shut. That for millennia to come, people will look at you. And the door of ministry will come from you. Isn't that an encouragement? In your insignificance, in your weakness, in your non-influential self, Jesus looks at this church and he's like, I'm going to open a door through you. Man, what, what kind of doors are you asking God to open in your life? What kind of, door, what kind of doors are you asking God? Is it God, it, it, and, and again, nothing wrong with the, you know, the jobs and the, and the whatever, the school. The, the, what, maybe the, the prayer should be God open doors for ministry in my life. Open doors for me to encounter people that would encounter the true and living God. That God, that I would just be a tool and that God, you would use my voice. Isn't that the kind of doors that we ought to be praying? The second promise he gives, and, and this is, on, on the surface it seems like Jesus is anti-Semitic, but he's not. He says, in the second promise is that the fake Jews, almost said fake news, that the fake Jews will fall at their feet. Behold, he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That's not a good promise. Who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and I, they will bow down before your feet and make them know that I, that I have loved you. Now listen, Jesus wasn't anti-Semitic. Jesus was a Jew when he was on the earth. What is he talking about? These people who have been persecuting, who have been lying, who have been doing all of these unjust things to his church. Listen to what he said. Listen to the promises. This is so critical. He says to them, one day my enemies will bow at my feet and they will look at you and they will know that you are my beloved. Like, like, just think about that for a second. The, the ones who are, per, like, the enemy, Satan has been using these people to flood against his people, Jesus' people. And all of those people have been persecuted. All of those who have been under the influence of Satan. Jesus gives them this wonderful promise that one day these people are going to just be foolish. And they're going to be on their knees and they're going to be looking at you, and they will know that I have loved you. You ever had something, in, like the, all of the unjust things that's taken place in your life, all of the, like one day, those things will bow down, 
at the feet of Jesus as Jesus the judge. Because Jesus the righteous king will be hovering over you and saying, you are my beloved. That for, for a church that's heavily persecuted, I, I'm sure that probably gave them a lot of comfort. For a church that has experienced a lot of unjust things, these people parading around as Jews, these people who are colluding likely with the Roman Empire to have God's church crushed out. Jesus gives them a promise. One day those jokers are going to bow down at my feet and they're going to watch me look at you and love you. This third promise he gives to them is that Jesus is going to keep them from the hour of trial because you have kept, verse 10, my word of perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of the testing. Life is going to come. Life is going to happen. You're going to endure suffering. You're going to have pain. You're going to have trauma. But hear the promise in this, that Jesus is going to keep you, that you will, you will be locked in his hands. That's, that's like, and if I were in a charismatic church, that's when everybody would be going crazy at this point. Because like, like Jesus will keep you. And listen, it, you may endure for the rest of your life hardship, pain. But ultimately, when you step into eternity, all of those things that you endured are going to seem light and momentary. That's the promise of the God's word that he gives us. I, got, I don't know about you, but that's encouragement. I think about, I, I think about Jerry when we, when we were doing his memorial service yesterday, how he was suffering in those final months of his life. When I was with him last Sunday before he took his last breath, like I think about that suffering he was going through, and I was thinking, God, take this man. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that he is in the presence of Jesus in all of that suffering that he endured in his life now seems like it was just a light and momentary affliction because now he is in the presence of Jesus Christ where he has no cancer. And one day that will be our story. That one day we will be standing in the face of Jesus Christ and we will not be experiencing the suffering we experienced on this earth. This is the promise that he's given this weak church. That it's, it's momentary. It is just in the here and now. It is not eternal. This fourth promise Jesus gives is that he will also keep them to the end. In verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This is about the perseverance of his church. He will preserve you so you will persevere. He will preserve you so that you can persevere. It is a call of endurance in our modern day language we call this grit that we would stand firm we would we would be as the, the the writer would say be steadfast be immovable be keep laser focus stay faithful endure that's the call of the church when things aren't going our way what is the nature of the church well i'll just go find somewhere else and play right when things don't go your way, what do you do? 
Well, you're not the problem. Certainly, I'm not the problem in this case because we never see ourselves as the problem. It's always my spouse's fault. It's always Marinda's fault. It's never mine. It's always my children. They're just barbarians at home. It's never my fault. I lead them well. Oh, it's not, it's not us as a congregation. It's always the pastor's fault. He's a moron. I was talking about Dan, not me. It's never our fault. When problems come, our knee-jerk reaction is to point the finger, and what do we do? We get out, out of this situation. Why do we do this? Well, it could be because the mantra of our culture is always, you're not the problem. It, it, was, it was the people around you. It was your family. It was your, what your mother did to you when you were two years old. It was all this and this and this and this and this. And you're never the problem. That's not what endurance is. Could you imagine being in, in, in the church of Philadelphia? And perhaps you may be in, in hiding. Perhaps you aren't hiding. And perhaps you are proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ in an incredibly hostile environment, knowing that your life is on the line. Would you endure that? Would you say, I'm willing to die for the cause of Christ? It is, it is language that Paul uses in Philippians when he says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So who is the one who is enduring? Is it you? Well, he is preserving you to persevere. Because if he is the one who called you, he is the one who will be faithful to continue his work until it is completed. So, yeah, it's you enduring, but it is also the Holy Spirit inside of you who is causing you to endure. It's also a promise to make them a pillar in the temple of God. This is a very interesting one. The one in verse 12, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So Jesus is this doorkeeper. Now, we, the church, are described as the pillars of the temple of God. Those who are rejected, those in Philadelphia who are small, will be the pillars of the temple of God. They feel weak. They feel little. They feel insignificant. Some of us, we feel that way too. We feel weak at times. We feel insignificant. We feel like, well, maybe God can't use me in this age or in this time of my life. Maybe God can't use this church. But hear the word of the Lord this morning over us, that you who feel weak, you who feels insignificant, will become the pillars in the temple of God. You will be strong. You will be the ones who are sturdy. You will be the strong beams of the house of God. It is not how we... Uh, our identity is not how we feel in the moment, that we feel like a weak, that we feel like an insignificant part in all of this. But our identity is wrapping up into how Jesus views us, that we aren't insignificant, and that churches in Utah are not insignificant, but we are pillars in the temple of God, and that God will use us in our weakness and in our insignificance there's another promise in here in verse 12. He promises like this threefold name that will be sealed, that will seal their identity as God's people. Look at verse 12. 
The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name, three times to seal it with a seal of perfection. Church of Philadelphia, you may feel weak and you may feel insignificant, but I'll give you a new name. People view you as nothing. People view you as worthless, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're mine. Jesus looks at them and says, you are mine. You belong to me. In fact, I think this is interesting that every promise is tailor-made to their current situations. Um, Have you no opening in the synagogue? Okay. I will open a door that no one can shut. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Do you have enemies that think you can wor- that you worship a fake God? Oh, okay. Well, I'll make them know that I love you, and I'll make them bow down to me, and I, that I, and I will let them know that I am the true and the only God. Have you endured trials? Listen to the promise. He will keep you from the evil one. Are you barely hanging on? That's fine. Listen to the promise. I will see to it that you do not lose your crown. Are you weak? I will make you a pillar. Do you feel rejected and useless? That's okay. I will give you a new name, and I will write my name on your heart and on your head. Feeling weak and insignificant, Jesus looks at this weak and insignificant church and says, I will not fail you. I will keep you. I will hold you until the day. Let me give just a couple of thoughts on this text. The first thought is that as a church, our mission is critical. It is a distinguished worship of a distinguished God that we would never waver. Our goal, our ultimate goal, listen, is not to gain the influence. That's not our goal. There's nothing wrong with having the influence. But that's not our end goal. Our goal is to be the true church of Jesus Christ. The church of Philadelphia was very insignificant in our eyes. The other thought to this is that we should not neglect the small beginnings or mock our limitations. There's a reference to this in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, when, when he's telling Zerubbabel that he's going to build the temple. But Zerubbabel feels so insignificant, and he's very frustrated. He's at the end of his life, and he's thinking, will this ever happen? Will God continue to use me? My boy is discouraged, and I like that in him. Because if the Bible were filled with men and women who had it all together, then, man, we would all be in trouble. My boy Zerubbabel feels weak, He's discouraged. And the voice of the Lord comes and he speaks to Zerubbabel and he says, do not despise the small beginnings. Do not despise those weak and insignificant moments where you thought, will this ever amount to anything? I think I would also add for us to not to mock or feel like that God can't use our limitations. Consider the early church. No lights, no speakers. 
No Nord keyboards, no microphones, no comfortable seating, no, no big screen, no big building, likely just a house. I wonder what they would think if they look at the church and they say to those churches, or they see those churches who say, you know what, if we just had this, then we can expand our reach. If we just had the bigger building, then, then the people would come. If we had more lights, if we had all of these really cool things, if we had the better children's ministry, if we had the better small groups, if we had, you know, more ministry, more things, then surely God's going to just like blow it all up and it's going to be incredible and everybody's going to come flocking. Ever wondered what the, the first and early church would think of that? Think about the limitations they had. Because God uses our limitations. He doesn't use our strengths. For those of us who are wondering, like, when is this going to happen in our church? When, when are we going to get the bigger building? When are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? Listen to me carefully. All that we have, all that we need to reach the city is right here within our limitations. You get that? God doesn't need us. Let me just stretch that. God doesn't even care or want us to look like somehow we have it all together. And then he somehow steps in and be like, y'all going to take over that city. It's when we are at our weakest. It is when we have and we recognize that all that we have right now, even the limitations that we have, God can use you. God can use this church. And let that be an encouragement to you this morning. You feeling like all you have to offer is just something small and it's just, and it's even broken at that. That's exactly where God wants you. Because God uses the weak. God uses the limitations. We're about to go into Christmas and the holidays, and we think about Jesus. We think about Bethlehem. Modern day Parowan. Do you remember what the, the can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the method of operation that God uses. Those small and significant places, those people who feel like they have limitations. If we are feeling weak and if we're feeling like we're limited on our resources, might I just add that is exactly where God wants you to be. Because through that is when he makes his power known great among us. Can we tear down the walls of what culture wants us to be, even in an in in American culture, American church type culture, and just think through this through different lens? God wants to use us in our weakness and with our limited resources because God has a habit of displaying his strength 
in the midst of those things. Do not neglect the small beginnings. Let's pray, Father. Father.